Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we read through um, verse 11, verse 12. We're going to go up until verse 12, verse 11. So, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And, you know, Luke is the author of, of the book of Acts, and he also records uh, just briefly this occasion in Luke chapter 24, verse 50. So if you just want to turn over there backwards a little bit there, uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 50, we'll read to the end. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And so we've been on a journey. We've been on a journey since Christmas as we celebrated the incarnation of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we chronicle the life of Jesus. From that point, we, we arrive at important milestones in his life and ministry here on earth. And one of those is his baptism, an act of humility as Jesus counts himself as one of us, sinners, foreshadowing the cross where he would die for the sins of all, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we see too in the baptism and this occasion that God the Father establishes the authority of Jesus for his public ministry. And then we have Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, of a public demonstration that he was Messiah, the true king of Israel as prophesied by the Old Testament. All four of the Gospels record this occasion for us, and we celebrate it on Palm Sunday. Then just over a month ago, we observed Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus. Romans 5, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then we all celebrated the glorious truth of his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And as it goes on there in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice 
in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through his death and resurrection, as Ephesians 2 puts us, we were afar off and he brought us near. We were afar off. He brought us near and Jesus has become our peace. Can we just pause there just for a moment and take in the fact that Jesus has become our peace? Can we just rest in that thought this morning? Maybe you need to rest in that thought this morning, that Jesus is your peace. And I know chaos awaits us as we leave this building today and amidst our daily lives, but there was an immense price paid for you and for me. So that in the midst of all that chaos of life, we can have peace. And Jesus told his disciples that in John chapter 14, 27, he said, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And maybe that's just an important message for someone this morning. Maybe that's the only thing you need to hear for this sermon this morning is that Jesus is your peace that you need to rest in him. But what about the ascension? What about the ascension? We, we have the incarnation and we have the baptism. We have the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. We have the crucifixion. We have the resurrection. But what about the ascension? You know, in the course of my study, I was reading Wikipedia because that's, of course, a reliable source for all Bible teachers and theologians in our day. Uh, No, just kidding. But I did read something there that seemed to ring true, at least from my perspective. And it said that many Protestant churches had abandoned the observance of the Ascension Day. And to be honest, the the reason it rang true was that even for me, the Ascension Day, the, the Ascension of Jesus was not always or has not always been on my radar. Maybe like some of you, we celebrate Easter, the glorious resurrection of our Savior, and then we Look to Pentecost and the promise of the Holy Spirit. We kind of just skip over the ascension. I've never really, I've never taught a Bible study on the topic. And so this was a great time just to dig deep into what the Lord had to say about this. And it was, it was eye-opening in many ways. And I hopefully it'll be for you too. It'll be a blessing to you this morning as we dive into it. And especially in light of all of how Jesus and the disciples And the early church viewed the ascension. Now, one of the early church fathers, Augustine, said it this way. He said, the ascension is a festival which confirms the grace of all the festivals together, without which the profitableness of every festival would have perished. For unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity, meaning his birth, would have come to nothing in his passion, meaning his crucifixion, would have borne no fruit for us and his most holy resurrection would have been useless. Wow, those seem like very strong words and maybe a bit jarring maybe for some of us in our Christian worldview. But basically what Augustine is saying is that just as the resurrection is the proof that the death of Jesus for our sins was effectual, the ascension serves as proof that the resurrection of Jesus was effectual. In many ways, the ascension is the exclamation point at the end of those amazing words spoken by Jesus on the cross. It is finished. 
The ascension is the perfect bookend to the salvation narrative where we see Jesus there beginning with the incarnation and Philippians 2.7 carries on the narrative, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus prayed in John 17, 5, he said, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The mission for our salvation has been accomplished. It is finished exclamation point. And from the incarnation to the, uh, to the ascension, the ascension is a critical part of the salvation narrative. And today we are going to look at why it's so important for us not only to think about it, not only to think about it today on Ascension Sunday, but every day. So here's our sentence for this morning, which will serve as a outline for our study this morning. And this is just a great way of, of getting a synopsis of what our study is going to be today. So when you leave today, you will have some way of remembering what we have talked about and studied this morning. So I encourage you to, to take a picture of it, maybe write it down. It's in the YouVersion app on, the, on your Bible app. All my notes are in there. And all the scripture passages that we'll be going through are also all going, going to be in there. And so our sentence for today, the ascension of Jesus establishes a seat of power in order that we might fulfill our divine purpose as we prepare for his return. The ascension of Jesus establishes a seat of power in order that we might fulfill our divine purpose as we prepare for his return. So let's return to our text there in Acts chapter 1 and let's read as we get to the first part of our sentence. The ascension of Jesus establishes a seat of power. And we read there in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now these guys are starting to sound like a broken record with this Aren't you going to restore things to Israel thing? You know, they, they, they don't seem to have got it. They are still blind to the reality of what Jesus had accomplished. And I know I'm being a bit facetious here, but it seems what they're saying is like, okay, Lord, you suffered a brutal and a horrible death on the cross. And, and we're, we're eternally grateful. We thank you for that, Lord. And then you resurrected from the dead. And that was like amazing. That's amazing. You were like dead and then you're like undead. That's just amazing. But the bigger question is, is when are you going to overthrow the Romans? You know, when is Israel going to be a nation again? You know, when are you going to establish your kingdom here on earth and rule as king from the throne in Jerusalem? You've been doing your thing here. That's great. You've been doing your thing and that's working out and stuff. But it's time to get to the the real business at hand, and that's the Romans are still here, and they need to go. And then Jesus replies to them in verse 7. He says, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. Jesus saying, guys, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong questions. And I'm glad Jesus is so patient with them and patient with us as well. So many times we are asking the wrong questions. And this was the first of many times that, that Jesus had to redirect their questions. 
In John 16, in preparation for this very moment, Jesus says, I've been telling you all these things and sorrow has filled your heart. But none of you has asked me, where are you going? Why was it important that Jesus ascended into heaven? And why was it important to those who watched him ascend? And why is it important to us today? Well, first and foremost, it was to establish, as it is in our sentence, to establish the true seat of power over all things, seated at the right hand of power, seated at the right hand of the Father. Not on a throne in Jerusalem, but in the heavens above. And the apostle Peter, who stood in sorrow when Jesus said that he needed to go and that the Christ had needed to suffer many things before that happened, Peter even rebuked him when he said that, he would finally understand where the true seat of power lay. As he, as he later would write in 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And Peter would also testify to this very event 10 days later as he preached in boldness, filled with the Holy Spirit, saying in there in Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up and all of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. The conquering king returning to his rightful place of power, seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus said in Revelation 3, I conquered and I sat down with my Father on his throne. This morning, he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of Lords. Psalm 24, he gives us, an, an, I think, an amazing picture of what, what the host of heaven might have been singing as Jesus returned as the conquering king, having accomplished all that the Father had sent him to do, namely conquering death and overcoming the world and providing a way of salvation for all mankind that whosoever believes upon the name of Jesus will have eternal life. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And Hebrews 10, 12 puts it beautifully. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. Exclamation point. Old hymn says, the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. The highest place that heaven affords is his, is his by right, the King of kings and Lord of lords in heaven's eternal light. So what does Jesus do now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father? Well, last week we saw in Matthew chapter 28, as, as Jesus was giving the great commission to his disciples, he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what is he doing with all of that authority? Well, first of all, he is governing the universe. He is governing the universe. Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't know about you, but my little pea brain can't necessarily wrap my mind around that kind of power. That the word became flesh, dwelt amongst us, and holds the world together. But what I do know is that it does bring me comfort and peace this morning. That in the midst of the chaos of life, I know someone who sees it and can walk me through it. That the ruler of our universe is also the ruler of my heart. So first of all, he is governing our universe. Secondly, number two, he is ruling over the church. Now this might come as a shock to some of you, but Pastor Nick is not the head of Whitefields Community Church. I'm certainly not. Our elder board does not rule this church, though they are gifted, wise, and godly men. No, Jesus is the head of his church, his bride, Whitefields Community Church. Colossians 1.18 says, He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. And why? Why is Jesus? Why can only Jesus be the head of the church? Because he died for it, that he may sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's no leader here at this church that can do that. Only Jesus. But what we do and what you should expect of us is that we are submitted wholeheartedly to the authority of Jesus, to the word of truth, to the leading of the Holy Spirit, committed to prayer and seeking the Lord for for his will in all of our decisions. You know, we want Jesus to be glorified in us and in this church through the preaching of the word and worship and song and in prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread together. We want this church to bring glory to his name and that many others will willingly submit to his authority in their lives. And we just pray that you, we, we, we ask that you would pray for the leadership of this church regularly. That you would remember us in your prayer time as, as Pastor Nick leads this church forward and as the elders and the leadership and the staff under the headship of Jesus. So he is governing the universe. Secondly, he is ruling over the church. And thirdly, number three, he is pleading our case. As that beautiful song goes, and we're going to sing it after the service. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Jesus is our mediator this morning. Jesus is our advocate. And the good news is that if you have been justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption only found in Christ Jesus, then you know that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, we've already looked at this verse this morning, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 again. For our sake, he 
he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And why is that important? Why is that important? Well, John tells us in his epistle in 1 John 2, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, then you stand in his righteousness and not your own. And you can take heart in that. You can rest in that. You can rejoice in that. You stand in his righteousness and his alone. And as the second verse of that song goes, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, up would I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Jesus is pleading our case for the throne. And lastly, number four, Jesus ascended to heaven to prepare a place for you and for me. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I had to go, to, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Just another reminder that this place is not our home. This world around us is not our home. That house that you're paying on, that apartment that you're renting is nothing compared to what God has prepared for you and I. Those things that we toil a lifetime for will pale in comparison to all God has planned for those who are in Christ Jesus Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has, have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So what is Jesus doing now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father? Well, he's really, really busy. He is governing the universe. He is ruling the church. He is pleading our case. And he is preparing a place for you and, and for, uh, for me. And we also have a, a part to play, you know. We also have a part to play as we come to the second part of our sentence. The ascension of Jesus establishes a seat of power in order that we might fulfill our divine purpose. So let's get back to our text and we read uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So when we started this, this study, we, we asked some questions. Why, why is it important that Jesus ascended into heaven? Why was it important to those who watched him ascend? And why is it important to us today? Well, first of all, we've looked at it. It is to establish a seed of power. And secondly, the second reason the ascension is so important is that as long as Jesus remained here on earth, his ministry would have been confined to the region of Jerusalem. You know, he was but one man. But because he ascended, the promise of a helper, the Holy Spirit, is now released into the world to do his work, empowering those, coming alongside those who believe 
to be witnesses of the gospel, the good news, not only in Jerusalem, but Samaria and to the end of the earth, even here to Longmont. Jesus did not only die for the sins of those few who happened to live in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but for the whole world. The message of the gospel was for, for always, for all of the nations, for God so loved the world. The disciples did not realize it yet, but they would catch on really fast. And by Acts 17, we read that they had turned the whole world upside down for the gospel. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, they were preaching the word, they were healing the sick, all those things that Jesus had done and more. You remember our friend Doubting Thomas? We looked at him a, a few weeks ago. You know, historians and church tradition tell us that he was martyred in India. You know, Thomas had begun his journey in doubt, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, he had taken the gospel to India. And some even say that he had made forays to China and into Indonesia. What an amazing transformation. And Jesus had told his disciples these very things. In John chapter 14, verse 12, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And at that time, of course, they did not fully understand what he was saying. Several times Jesus had told them that when he left, the Father would send a helper in John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He even told them that it was to their advantage that he goes. It was to their advantage. John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, I'm sure that, that they really didn't feel that it was much of an advantage when, when Jesus was taken off and taken to trial and crucified on a cross. And they came under you know, intense scrutiny as being followers of this, of, of this Jesus. And they, they feared for their lives. They feared for their lives. They, they scattered. I can't say for sure, but I'm sure there was, this, there was a great sense of comfort being in the presence of Jesus, being around him. I'm sure they felt like that he would always protect them. And now he was gone and they were confused and they were afraid and they were alone. Even Peter would deny Jesus three times. We looked at that as well in the course of our study these past few weeks. And he betraying the loyalty of the very one that he had called the Christ, the son of the living God. But what a transformation in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gives his first sermon filled with the Holy Spirit. What a change. He would say, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, listen to me in boldness and authority. Peter preached and 3,000 people were added to the church. Now, this was an advantage. This made sense. This was their divine purpose and it's our divine purpose to be a part of the continued work of Jesus here on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul puts it wonderfully in 1 Corinthians 1.4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, 
so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God wants to use each and every one of you as part of his gospel mission. That is your divine purpose. Each one of you is uniquely gifted to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to this generation, empowered by the Holy Spirit for the work of the ministry. That is what the risen life is all about. That's what we're talking about week after week about the risen life being part of the continued work of Jesus Christ here on earth. As we have been singing in that song over the past few weeks, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us, lives in us. And the best part is that we're not, we're not alone. Back there in John 14, as Jesus laying out what is about to happen, that he will suffer and he will die and then he will leave. And, you know, in the midst of all their questions and confusions, he tells them this. John 14, 18. I encourage you to underline it if you haven't already done so. It says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I remember being taken, taken back a bit when I, when I read that verse. I, I love these kind of verses because they give me a window into the nature of my God. That God, he knows my frailty. He knows my weakness, my lack of resolve. You know, Jesus knew his disciples were, they were not digesting all that he was saying. They, they were afraid and they were confused. And he spoke right to that with the only words that would bring them comfort. I will come for you. I will always be with you. Now we're going to dive a, a bit more into the nature of the Holy Spirit in our next series, The Spirit-Filled Life. So you don't want to miss that. We're going to kick it off next week as we celebrate Pentecost, the promise of the Holy Spirit given to us. So you want to be here for that for sure. But I hope that you can see a little clearer the advantage that Jesus spoke of for him to, to go to the right hand of the Father and for the Holy Spirit to be sent. Absence of his physical presence means the availability of his spiritual presence. Let me read that verse in John 14, 18 again. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now keep this verse in mind as we finish our text here in Acts chapter 1, starting there in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So finally, we get to the third part of our sentence. The ascension of Jesus establishes a seat of power in order that we might fulfill our divine purpose as we prepare for his return. The third reason that the ascension of Jesus is important is because it's, it starts the clock for his return. It starts the clock for his return. In John, back to John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, 
what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and, and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And how is Jesus going to return for his church, for his bride? Well, he's going to return the same way that he ascended, as pointed out by these, these men dressed in white robes, physically and visibly. It's not going to be in the cover of darkness or in secret or in the spirit. It will be obvious to the whole world. As Paul points out in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. We can take heart in the fact that our ascended king will return for his church. And until that day happens, we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit leading us forward. We are not orphans, but children of the living God who will one day spend eternity. We will one day spend eternity with our Savior and our King in heaven. And I know that I'm looking forward to that day, and I hope that you are as well. But as we close today, I want to draw your attention to the reaction of the disciples to the ascension of Jesus back there in Luke chapter 24. We read that at the beginning of our study. So you just want to turn back there to Luke chapter 24. We're going to read from verse, um, read from verse 51. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Wow. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Jesus had told his disciples in John 16 that when they saw him ascend into heaven, that they would finally understand and that their sorrow would be turned into joy. And that's exactly what happened. And they returned to Jerusalem rejoicing, waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. And they probably remembered all of those conversations Jesus had with them. And now they all made sense. And armed with the knowledge that he would return, that, that he would never leave them, that the power of the Holy Spirit would be, be upon them. They prepared for his return by being witnesses of the gospel to all the nations. There is a phrase that people say about Christians sometimes that we are so heavenly minded, we are no earthly good. And that can be true if we're just kind of holding on, surviving here on earth until Jesus returns in our bunkers like, Lord, come quickly, come quickly, you know. But to be truly heavenly minded is to know that God has called us to be earthly good, to be the hands and the feet to a world that desperately, desperately needs him. Now, I've, I've referenced John chapter 14 through 16 quite a bit today. So you have a homework assignment this week in light of all that we have talked about, and that is to read, read those chapters. Read those chapters in your quiet time. Meditate on them this week. John 14 through 16, Jesus having this real heart-to-heart -heart conversation with his disciples. And then in chapter 17... He prays for them. And then he prays for us. I don't know if you knew that. He prays for us in John chapter 17 in the, in the priest, high priestly prayer it's called. So 
My encouragement is you read those chapters, chapters 14 through 17, and let God bring you comfort and peace in his word. The ascension of Jesus establishes a seat of power in order that we might fulfill our divine purpose as we prepare for his return. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. 